Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of The London Circle. Today we're talking about the campaign against pro-Palestinian voices, about those views that criticize Zionism or even criticize Israel and the repercussions that come their way. I'll be talking with Professor David Miller, former professor of sociology, as well as Nassim Ahmed, who's a writer and researcher at Middle East Monitor. Enjoy. It is claimed that um, we live in a free country. It is claimed that we live in a society where values such as free speech, the freedom of expression, freedom of belief and faith are sacrosanct. Basically, they are guarded by the, you know, the, very, the very foundations of society. Yet, uh, clearly, that, I would suggest, is not the case when it comes to talking about Palestine, when it comes to criticizing uh, Israel, and when it comes to talking about the rights of Palestinians specifically. Talking about Zionism as an ideology, as well as a political venture. Um, it's extremely worrying that um, this, whilst, as I said, I mean, we claim to be... Uh, democratic, we claim to be equal, we claim to hold high the value of free speech and free thinking. Yet, it is evident that um, once one touches the boundaries of Israel and Palestine and Zionism and the such, all those seem to disappear. Um, I can actually cite, um, you know, a very close um, media organization that have only recently been taken off Facebook because of some posts uh, back in 2013-2014 pertaining to Palestine, to a clash and attack on, on Gaza. So obviously the question that I, I probably should start with is why? But I think I'm being a little bit disingenuous because, because I have a sense of why, I have a thinking of why. But from both your perspectives, I'd, I'd like to hear more about, you know, your own observations about, you know, why you think that we are here. Why is it that people are so afraid of expressing their views? You call for a demonstration and a march and tens of thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands turn up from all across society. But, you know, you don't see the same figures when you're asking for people to actually voice their opinions openly and publicly and the such. They fear for their jobs, their careers. I recall a young man who once fronted a march for Palestine being called into the office the next day saying, listen, do you want a career or do you not? Why is that? Why is that? I think it goes back many years. There's been a concerted effort for since I would say 2005 when the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement was uh, launched by the Palestinians. And um, Israel saw that as a threat. Israel, pro-Israeli organizations, Zionist organizations around the world, in their mind, um, having a BDS movement in the similar way as you had a boycott, divestment against South Africa is, is an existential threat. So I think they mobilized into action and gear 
from as far back as 2005, even before that, I think having realized that, I think 2009 as well, Operation Cast led um, a number of um, you know strategists, analysts from the Reuters Institute. They they recognized that Israel's reputation in the world has taken a nosedive, and therefore they had to um, you know counter that. Uh, as a result of that, you will see a number of organizations, um, you know, so-called grassroots organizations. Developing in in London in the US, trying to counter what they call delegitimization of Israel. Um, so various grassroots organizations. I mean, I should make a distinction between civil grassroots organizations, bottom up grassroots organizations, and top down grassroots organizations. So they develop these legal agencies, uh, think tanks, and um, you know, propagandists. I would say uh, to counter the uh, anti delegitimization of Israel. And and part of that has led to where we are, you know, where um, a definition of anti-Semitism, which conflates, you know, criticism of Israel, is at the center of uh, anti-Semitism, and it's being used for regulatory purposes. And universities and organisations around, you know, capitals in in Europe and in the West are generally are being forced to adopt that. Uh, and this, the adoption of that, has led to horrendous miscarriage of, I would say, justice. You know, we have one guest here today, David Miller. You know, people like David and so many others in the US, in Germany, in France, uh, are being, you know, um, are being terrorized, I would say, and afraid to speak out on Israel, fearing that any criticism of Israel could get them into trouble and, um, and you know, get them but to lose quite, their jobs. It's quite a dangerous thing. I mean, uh, this flaunting of anti-Semitism as, as, as the very first charge, you know, and just brandishing it around so casually, surely it, it threatens to, to make, you know, to, to really devalue the whole thing about anti-Semitism, which in itself is quite an evil thing to be racist in that way and to, you know, discriminate against someone for being Jewish or the, or the like is, is criminal, is nigh on criminal. In fact, it is criminal. But this, every single criticism that we have of what Israel is doing, how the Palestinians are being treated, to readily have anti-Semitism as the charge is surely damaging to, to the whole cause of, of, of non-discrimination. I mean, I think it is. I think it does run the risk of encouraging, um, what should we say, Judeophobia or anti-Jewish feelings and thoughts in the society. But I don't really think that anti-Semitism is a major problem in Western societies. Uh, it hasn't been for some decades now. There are some pockets amongst the fascist movements uh, where there's still anti-Semitism as a, a racial philosophy still exists. But there's no real uh, sense of uh, feelings about Jews in this country like that at all. In fact, you know, the opposite is the case, that people become more and more tolerant of ethnic diversity, and, you know, including actually including you know, black people as, as well as to some extent in relation to, to Muslims and Islam. And, but there's no, there's no real racism against Jewish people in the UK, for example, now, in the way that there is against black people, and certainly there is against Muslims, uh, uh, which I would call Islamophobia. So I think that the, the, we make a mistake if we think that we can just say, well, we, of course we're opposed to anti-Semitism and we're opposed to all forms of racism, and anti-Semitism is terrible, and it really exists in the country, because it, it, it doesn't really. I mean, it, the people who say it exists in the country are the Zionist groups, and the, these are groups which are all um, you know, not tightly, but all uh, loosely coordinated uh, uh, from Israel. I mean, and the the idea um, you were talking about the IHRA and the 
definitions of anti-Semitism. The idea that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are the same thing is not something which is just by accident become something which has been imposed by some kind of mysterious process. It's something which, of course, was developed directly by the Zionist regime, in, uh, along with a number of Zionist organizations from the UK and indeed from France and the US. And they've created this uh, idea that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism are the same thing. Uh, and since uh, the year 2000, when they started the Global Forum for combating anti-Semitism, which has had you know, regular meetings in, in Tel Aviv so if, and Jerusalem. So if anti-Semitism isn't the problem, what is? Well, in terms of racism in the society, the main form of racism in, in the UK today is against Muslims. Uh, uh, and you, and let's, let's, you look at the, 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 uh, the figures, the, the data, the data collected, for example, by you know, a very compromised body, but nevertheless, look at the data uh, co compare, compiled by the, the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission. And you, you see in that data, that uh, the, the the most privileged ethnic group in in the country are the Jews, by a, by a long long way. You know, above above the Hindus who are the second most, above Christians and white people. And who which groups at the bottom? Oh, big surprise! It's the Muslims, and they're the ones who bear the brunt of uh, of economic discrimination, of poverty, and indeed, of course, of the, the main driving force of racism in the country, racist policing and the counter-terrorism apparatus and the security state and all, all, all of those kinds of things. No Jew is, is picked up on the street by the police on a regular basis for looking Jewish. Muslims are. No Jew is stopped uh, when he comes back into the country uh, from, for a flight or, or on, the, on the Eurostar because they're Jewish. But just, it simply doesn't happen. There's no racial profiling of Jews. There is racial profiling of Muslims and, and, and of his, uh, people who adhere to Islam. So th th there's a, there is a real problem of racism in, in the society, which we should t tackle. But there's no uh, equivalence between the way in which Jews are treated in the society, either economically or in terms of, uh, of racism, from, racism from the state, the main driver of racism, and that the, the treatment meted out to Muslims. So I think we should, th we should, you know, we should have a clear knowledge of that, look at the data, uh, and you can see that from the data who, who, which which groups are, are advantaged, which groups are disadvantaged. Is there a is there a risk of racialization of Jews coming back with the kind of stuff you saw with the Nazis? Not really. Uh, if, if you know if, if that started to happen, then of course we should fight that. But it's not really a risk of that happening in in this country. There might be in other places. So, you know, there are strong ways in which Nazi ideology uh, is present in some countries. I would say. Obviously, in Ukraine is, is one example, and probably we don't want to get, get onto that as a topic. But, but the, 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 what you need to look at here, it seems to me, is the way in which the idea that the Jews as a, as a group are unsafe in the country is, is promoted by Zionist organizations. And in particular, of course, those organizations which are set up to tackle anti-Semitism, which claim simply to be Jewish organizations, but which are, of course, in fact, uh, uh, lobbyists for the state of Israel. I mean, I mean you mentioned, Nassim, that uh, you, you, you find the, uh, the initiation of the BDS movement in 2005 and then Castle in 2009 as being uh, drivers and triggers to, to, to this whole thing that we're talking about today. Um, I remember a, a report issued, I think it was by Europol, I might be wrong, uh, back in around 2007, 2008, where 20,000 European citizens across eight countries were asked the question, who do you think is the greatest threat to world peace? And the answer came by far, Israel. And these were not Muslims, they were not Palestinians, uh, they were ordinary uh, European citizens from across the board, across many, many countries. And to me, I think that that triggered something in, in the Zionist movement particularly, that um, if 
that is the feeling of people who are n not really i you know ideologues they're not being indoctrinated they're not being and and that's what they think then um, then something needs to be done and uh, that to an extent explains why it is that the israeli uh, pr machine in europe and america spends the most whereby the, despite the fact the countries there are its closest allies yeah. that it, it you know in in ordinary terms it doesn't really need to spend too much in america for instance where israel is seen as the 51st state or in europe where basically there is no quarrel with israel so but but i think that that is what triggered uh something in the the, the mind of the zionist machine machinery that that something needed to be done yeah which is which is uh, why they launched the project of brand israel you know we have to defend the the, the reputation of israel and what you're describing really um, is still an ongoing um, phenomenon where israel is losing support amongst american jews um before where israel used to be bipartisan issue this year is the first time where democrats overwhelmingly um support palestinians over israel so it's losing the bipartisan support and the support enjoyed i mean it's, it's interesting you mentioned america uh, apologies for interrupting but you reminded me that when i first visited the us in 2000 and um, i tried to speak about palestine my my muslim hosts said oh please don't don't, don't do even that. go there <laughs> this, is, this is a non you know this is a no go area yet now we see that it's discussed in congress I mean that that is a shift of Nakba last week it was discussed in the congress there was an event held uh, by the yeah the point i'm making so generally grassroots population in the us in uk as well i think they generally turn against israel the reputation of israel is is very low but the establishment figures uh, especially on the right you know they still see israel as an ally uh which is why you see the backlash uh backlash in the form of legislations to undermine pro-palestinian activism and control spaces like in the university social media all kind of spaces um and part of that is to incorporate their ihra as as, as a way of regulating the discourse on israel and that to me that goes to the heart of the issue if you're saying antisemitism antisemitism is on the rise by using a definition of antisemitism where seven out of the 11 examples conflates hatred towards jews with criticism of israel then of course you can find all kinds of examples where there is a rise in antisemitism it'd be equivalent to a muslim saying criticism of saudi arabia is islamophobic criticism of iran is islamophobic any muslim majority country if you criticize that country you're islamophobic if you adopted that definition then automatically you know islamophobia the rate of islamophobia would, would go up exponentially so uh again go go to the bottom of what is the definition of antisemitism that you're using and we see that there's a there's a reluctance to engage in that discussion when you say labors you know steeped in antisemitism okay what are the examples give me what is the example of antisemitism that you're using the media is reluctant to address and open this discussion uh we saw the labor fouls al jazeera labor fouls which which highlight and basically expose a lot of lot of what i'm saying now um but there was a complete media silence on the issue because they're just afraid to open up this issue so i think yeah well, well i mean they're afraid yes but also you know that there is i mean as with many other areas of british life there is penetration by the zionists so there there are key people key, key zionists in particular uh, roles in journalism just as there are 
in, in other areas of culture, just as there is in economics. And, and, and that means that it's difficult to, to raise and you get pushback inside those organizations when you raise these kinds of questions. And so you, you have, I mean, look, look at the, even the example of, of The Guardian, you know, the famed liberal organization, which you, which I, they used to take pieces from me. I mean, <laughs> Lo and behold. No, no longer. I'm from, me. I'm from me. Yeah, and from John Pilger <laughs> and many others. And that, that can't happen anymore because there's a, there's a, a Zionist stranglehold essentially on, on what gets into the paper so i mean that that, that goes across, all across the society and you, you you said about um the idea of uh, them organizing in in the us and in the uk well they, I mean, the zionists meaning both the the ministry of foreign affairs and also the mossad uh, and then of course all the many minions and shlichim as they call them their, their emissaries uh, operate all around the world and they they do this in a deliberate sort of uh, fashion an organized fashion it's so it, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that that happens but it's not that it's not that they are worried about the the uh, the the, organ the relationship with the state although I think I mean, like that is coming. It's that, they, as you say, they're worried about public opinion, and so they try and uh, undermine the possibility of opposition, and they try and do that by by colonising public space and by by stopping governments from taking decisions which would would uh, interfere with their their human rights abuses and the, and the appalling activities of the Zionist state. And the thing is that today, I mean, we're we're finding people suffer on every single level, not just being sacked from their jobs, but but basically never ever being entertained ever again in public forums, in uh, articles, and you know, people's careers have been derailed as a result of something that they tweeted or possibly even retweeted something like 10, 10 years ago. And I, I, I use the example of, for instance, the, uh, the heavily elected um, NUS president, uh, Dema Shalali, who suffered as soon, as soon as the results came out, who suffered immensely as a result of something that she had shared on Facebook, you know, over 10 years ago as someone who was 17 years old. It's... Um, Which wasn't in, it, in itself in any way problematic. Absolutely. Actually. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and this is um, where I find that we have gradually, we have gradually, and, and it might be because of this, but generally speaking, uh, Free spaces are being heavily regulated, heavily censored, and are being restricted. Um, you know, we talk sometimes about prevent, for instance, but they're, they're sort of intertwined because we have cases of 11-year-olds going and searching about Palestine and then being reported to prevent by their teachers or head teachers because why is he or she, for instance, uh, searching, uh, researching on Palestine? Well, support for pa Palestine is seen as one of the markers of radicalization. Markers of radicalization. But, but, yes. That's <laughs> right. But it's, but it's even worse than that because many of these organizations which are funded by Prevent or the, by the Building a Safer Bit Britain Together uh, initiative and, and, and all those, those kind of streams of funding from the Department for Leveling Up, as it's now called, uh, and indeed from the Home Office. I mean, many of the organizations that are funded directly by the British as part of its counter-terrorism and counter-extremism work are actually Zionist organizations or they're organizations which claim to be interfaith organizations to work together between Muslims and Jews or uh, Muslims and Jews and Christians. But actually these are organizations set up directly by Zionists in order to make it impossible for Muslims in, in public life to, to say anything about the Palestinians. I mean, there's, there's, there are tons of these organizations. We've been exposing them in our show, Palestine Declassified. One of them, for example, is Nisa Nishim, an organization set up by the Board of Deputies, uh, which, you know, when when we, we we confronted them with this, they said, oh, no, no, we weren't set up by the Board of Deputies, but it's on the, the BOD's own website. 
that they incubated them. So these are organizations which are Zionist infiltration operations, but which are directly funded by the British state. And that, that's an indication, really, I think, of the colonization by the Zionists of, of friendly governments. Now, the, I mean, the, the government of Britain and of the US are the strongest supporters of the, the, the Zionist regime. But nevertheless, the Zionists insist on trying to penetrate these, these, these states. Uh, let me give you one example, and I'll give way to, <laughs> to the. But you know, back, back in the 1950s, uh, MI5 discovered an Israeli spy inside the Joint Intelligence Committee, right? And they got rid of the guy, right? And they, but the, the, inter, the internal documents, which are now declassified, say, oh, now this is 1952. Now, oh, now we realize that Israel is a hostile foreign state. And they just put it just like that. So there was a current of opinion inside MI5 at the time, which understood how Mossad operates. And that current will still be there to some extent, but it's been overwhelmed by uh, by pro-Israel forces within the intelligence services and the security services and the security state. And that's a real problem in the sense that they've effectively colonized key parts of, uh, of the security state, which cannot recognize that there is a genuine national security threat from the state of Israel. And I think I think what David's describing is, is is a common playbook of authoritarians around the world at the moment. Not Israel, of course, probably does it more than anyone else. We we saw last week uh, example of how India's Narendra Modi the, uh, ha, has tried to um, stoke uh, anti-Muslim fervor in Leicester last year, and Tito's came out uh, last week from UK intelligence showing that there was a connection between Modi's uh, Hindutva anti-Muslim government uh, with with activists on the ground in Leicester stoking anti-Muslim uh, you know um, hostility so that's just an example of how one authoritarian work but that kind of ex- is, a, is, is a, it's a good example of how Israel also has penetrated into various parts of society in universities in uh, in campuses and uh, elsewhere to try and you know stoke First of all, uh, uh, hatred towards any critics of Israel, and I would say stoke Islamophobia in so, some instances. So um, that's a tried and tested method, which I think Israel has uh, used to. Its but in best- reality, and I think that we've all observed this, um, that this pushback on behalf of the state of Israel and the Zionist movement has resulted in an ever increasing wave of young as well as old people who are seeing this as deeply troubling. And I have many of my friends, some some even neighbors, actually, a couple of neighbors whom we have uh, frequent discussions, who tell me that they know nothing about Israel and Palestine, but they are deeply troubled by the fact that it's so scary to talk about Israel, to discuss anything pertaining to Israel. And that in itself is bringing people to read more, to understand more, to seek the other perspective and to basically join forces. That's why the marches for Palestine, the marches against the siege of, uh, on Gaza are getting ever and ever bigger. Well, you're, what you're, sorry, what you're saying is, is there's a really powerful example in the US uh, where one of the uh, uh, um, owner of a business, he was asked to sign a document saying he will not boycott Israel. So this is in Texas somewhere. It's in a documentary called uh, The Boycott. So in his mind, I've got nothing to do with Israel or Palestine. Why am I, an American citizen, being told to sign a document saying I will not boycott Israel? And he felt that his his uh, rights, his First Amendment was being, you know, undermined. Why, why should I be signing this document? So in the US, I think it's something like 25, 30 states have adopted policies, you know, demanding that if you're going to have any kind of uh, business transaction with the state, you sign a document 
basically pledging not to boycott Israel. Why should America do that? So Americans, out of their own sense of patriotism, are pushing back against that. They're realizing it's penetrated, this pro-Israel stance is penetrated so deep in society that it's undermining their freedoms, it's undermining democracy and their rights. And, and here's an example of one, one person pushing back, and there are many more like him. I mean, I think there's, a, there's also a danger that they face. I mean, they face danger from world public opinion and from most of the world's governments. But there's a danger they face also in, <clears throat> in the, the shift to the right in the Israeli government. So that the, the, the disputes that there currently are inside uh, occupied Palestine with, with Zionists protesting against the government uh, uh, is a, a real threat for them because what, what you see then is that, that uh, even a, a country like the US becomes skeptical about whether its interests are best served by supporting Zionist entity. Now, in the in the recent demonstrations, for example, there's a an organisation which is encouraging these demonstrations, which is funded by the National Endowment for Democracy, which is known as the CIA's sidekick. So, effectively, the CIA is funding demonstrations against its own ally, the State of Israel. Now, what's going on there, of course, is that there's a split within the Israeli state. Uh, Mossad are allowing their staff to engage in demonstrations against the government. Uh, and it's, it's said from those recent Pentagon leaked documents that, 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 that this is going on. It's been revealed in, in any case in the press that both the, the, the Shin Bet, which is the Internal Security Service, and the Mossad, and indeed the IDF have, have, have said that elite forces and intelligence officers can demonstrate against uh, the, the government. Now, that's partly because the the settler movement, the, fa the sort of fascist element of the settler movement, it is itself wanting to move towards an openly imperialist policy so that it contests uh, US imperialism, essentially. It's no longer, uh, as people used to say, the attack dog, but it's moving towards being its own, uh, in, in itself, an imperialist power. And that's, that's a, a red line which the US won't allow it to cross. So we see you know, difficulties for them in, in, in that sense, in their major supporter, and difficulties for them with the United uh, resistance in in Palestine, and the, indeed the support that the resistance has around about Palestine in, in Iran, in Iraq, in Lebanon, in Syria, uh, and other places, and that these are really difficult problems for the Zionists to to deal with. And they have you know, one of the responses is, as we've been saying, is invest in propaganda and try and stop it. The possibility of people taking action against them. What's happened in your case, uh, David? Well, in my case, I mean, I I, um, I arrived at the University of Bristol in 2018, and a couple of months later, I gave a lecture on Islamophobia, where I mentioned that um, one of what I've called the five pillars of Islamophobia is parts of the Zionist movement, that Zionists uh, uh, funders fund Isla openly Islamophobic groups, Islamophobic think tanks and the like. These are matters of which are both factual and based on my own research, and the uh, the, the, the a couple of students didn't like that. They complained to a, an Israel lobby group who made a complaint uh, that was rejected. Then the the Un University of Jewish Students uh, in London and the Bristol the Jewish Society, which is a, a member of the Uni Union of Jewish Students, made a formal complaint, um, which was investigated over two and a half years, and was rejected on every single ground. Uh, and six weeks later, after I'd been cleared of everything, uh, I went in a public meeting uh, and said that I'd been attacked and complained about simply factual matters. And that, of course, all hell was let loose as a result of that. I couldn't possibly 
refer to, to the fact that I'd been attacked and complained about within, you know, a, a completely ridiculous uh, complaint, as was found by the QC who investigated the complaint. And as a result, then uh, a, a huge campaign was got up, including over 100 MPs and, and many others to get me sacked. And they eventually sacked me after another investigation, which again found me not guilty of any anti-Semitism. They decided to, to, in any case, sack me because, not because of the words I'd said, uh, but because of the way the I way said, you said it. the words. Now, I didn't. I had no idea then, and I still don't know what that means. I went through an appeal. It was rejected. We now have a the last stage, which is an industrial tribunal, coming up in October this year, two weeks of court time, where, where I seek to establish that I've been wrongly uh, dismissed. I mean, this is troubling. This is troubling because, um, I mean, you're a professor of sociology. Um, research in academia is surely... I mean, they are areas whereby you go beyond. Uh, I mean, if 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 someone down the cafe was was looking up, uh, you know, something on, I don't know, anti you know, Nazism, for instance, you'd be concerned. But someone who's doing research in academia, you allow because that's part of human knowledge. You need to understand these things, just like a friend of ours who many years ago who went because he was doing his master's degree on Al-Qaeda narratives and went and downloaded some of their their research and his life was turned over. And he ended up, you know, being deported back to his country and he didn't finish his degree. Surely, surely there is a problem. And we're talking here about being in the United Kingdom. We're talking about a place where academic freedoms are seen as sacred and guarded. What's, I mean, what's, what is happening here? And what is the tra trajectory? Where, where, where are we getting to? As activists, we're being closed down. As media speakers and writers, we're being closed down. But now we have the case where academics and researchers are also being closed down. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we of course we cover Israel Palestine. I think there's a every month there's a, an example of a story we will cover where one academic or another has uh, come under um, you know threat of being expelled uh, for speaking about Israel Palestine. Last few weeks ago, it was Lara Shehi from the US, and before it was someone else. You, can, you know, there's so many, so many, so many academics. I mean, when I look at this, sometimes I think the, the pro-Israeli lobby have tapped into a, a modern zeitgeist in the sense that what I feel is more important than any factual truth or any principle out there. My feeling is my reality. You know, Feelings have been given more prominence over any kind of objective research, objective principles that we hold. And I think they, they whereas the, 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 the left and the modern what we some people negatively call the woke, but people who are uh, 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 understand the structures of racism, they use that to basically dismantle, understand racism in a proper, honest way. Uh, the Zionists, what they seem to have latched onto, is saying that my feeling of being attacked or Israel being attacked is an attack on my identity. You know, so they're using this identity discourse not to protect um, you know themselves from racism, but to protect Israel. And I think they've tapped into something which is very, very powerful. They've discovered that a while back, I think, and they're using that. Uh, and where to use that better than universities, you know, where students can, where, where there is a culture war happening. This is the front line of culture where universities, campuses, and students are being recruited and I would say indoctrinated to, to peddle this line that attack on Israel is an attack on my identity and my self-expression has as much value as a black person who's 
who's basically facing racism from the police every single day. The, the, you know, so when you have a reality where self-expression, individual experience is given pre, pre, you know, preeminence and value more than objective reality, objective you know, principles and research, which David's work is based on, that's what you end up with. I, I recall days when I was frequently asked to, to speak to public meetings at, in university campuses and uh, to speak to students and to agree, disagree, to have a ding dong, you know, with with uh, uh, with with everyone regarding what I said, or what I think, or the such, and um, and and that was a time when, on average, I would get an invitation, probably two invitations a week. Um, for the past ten years, I would say that that has dwindled down to, if lucky, once a year, and um, always surrounded by preceded by and then succeeded by um, a huge wave of letters, of complaints, of emails of and the such. Um, and it's deeply disconcerting. My political activism began in the mid to late 80s with the South African anti-apartheid protests. And that was when my political awareness sort of begun. And it's it just troubles me so much that students today aren't allowed to engage in a discussion you know have someone have them air their views and then have a quarrel you know have an argument just tr now disagreement is racism disagreement is uh, anti-semitism it's it's, 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 it's just disagreement it's <laughs> deeply problematic and it 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 tells me and i fear of uh, generations of students who will emerge not having debated freely, not having discussed freely, having told that their inner thoughts must be curtailed and must be oppressed and suppressed so that basically they don't, you know, threaten their careers or they don't risk well, they're, never they're finding sort, a job. They're sort of being told that it's not just their, their words which is problematic, but their thoughts. Their thoughts. The, the, it's the thoughts behind or the intent the the assumed attention intentions behind what they've said which are which are problematic you know and it's it's crazy but that's that's where we are in society now and part of that's been developed by the Zionist movement but part of it's also been developed by the kind of, a kind of decay of the west i mean really we are in a situation where the kind of, the the triumph of liberal democracy of capitalist values is coming to an end uh, and uh, it's collapsing and it's collapsing into a kind of crazy identity politics morass and and so it's no wonder that people around the world look at what's happening in france germany the us the uk and they say you know that's these people are, are mad these people are absolutely mad and, and and as a result you know we you don't have much in the way of support for the West, or for liberal, and for what would we called enlightenment projects anymore? So, it, you know, in it, it's it's a, it's a kind of collapse of, I suppose you used to call it consumer society, but a kind of collapse of Western civilization. I think. I mean, I, that's pretty in grand terms, but I think that's what we're, we're seeing. The society, this society, is collapsing, uh, and it's being it's going to be replaced. And you know, just at the same time as we are in this, a situation where geopolitically. Uh, both in terms of economics and in terms of, of, of global realignments, the West is on the way out. Everyone sees that with the launch of the proxy war against the Russians. Uh, the power of, of US imperialism is waning. 
the, the, the increasing uh, uh, trend towards de-dollarization, the, the, the Chinese brokered relationship between the Saudis and the Iranians, all of these are signs that, that U, US power has peaked and is, is on, on its way down. And I think that this, that this is the cultural counterpart of that process. And maybe we, we won't see the full flourishing of that for, for some years to come, but I think it expresses something about a kind of sickness in Western society, that uh, Western societies are not able to full, fulfill the ambition of liberal ideas of you know justice, equality, and those kinds of things. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. Everybody sees that now, I think, in a way that they didn't 20 years ago, they didn't 30 years ago. So I think we're moving into a new historical period where the previous certainties are starting to melt. Yeah, on a granular level, I mean, just the discourse and the language, we can't even agree on terms anymore when we talk about social justice and everyone brings their own truth to the table. And you think, how do I dispute that? Whereas if you start with principles, you know, we know from a principle point of view, there was an Akbar under international law, occupation is uh, illegal. If, you, if it's permanent, it becomes permanent. We know settlement is, is, is uh, illegal. We know, for example, you know, um, um, colonizing people um, is illegal. We have uh, consensus amongst human rights groups. There is apartheid. We know what apartheid is. Uh, so we know all these things from a factual point of view based on principles. But now you can bring your truth. No, that's anti-Semitic. Calling Israel apartheid is anti-Semitic. Why? That's just my reality. That's what I feel. How do you contest that? You bring evidence, you bring principles, you bring, you know, a whole load of reports and something else. I don't believe that because it attacks my identity. I feel Israel uh, is being attacked and you're attacking me, therefore. Yeah. And it's, it's, so how do you, how do you contest well, that? Well, I mean, on the one hand, it, this is based on a kind of the postmodern movement in philosophy and postmodernism where there are no truths, but let's not divert yeah, yeah, okay. onto that question. But on the, on, the, on the other hand, there is also the, the use by the Zionists of a whole series of left-wing ideas, identity politics being one of them, or seemingly left-wing ideas. And, and you know, the, the, the idea that they, that um, I see some of the people on social media now, uh, uh, Jewish uh, people living in uh, occupied Palestine referring to themselves as being indigenous Judeans. Right? And you're like, no, no, that's that's factually not right. That's not correct. You know, the, the, most of the people who are in, who've occupied Palestine come from either from North Africa or from from Europe. I mean, there were indigenous Jews, a very small minority, yes, but the uh, overwhelming that's, majority that's right. are not indigenous. Uh, right. So that's the, that discuss, yeah, discusses. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're, 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 they were, you know, they were Arabs, right? They, yeah, they that's were, right. They, they were Arabs who had various religions. That's right. But they're now called something else because the Zionists want to, to make them separate. That's right. And, the, and it's, the, it's the construction of this this Zionist narrative, which is they've spent a huge amount of effort on. But they, you know, they're trying to colonize the idea of decolonization. Uh, with, you know, which is a, which is kind of a, an important uh, set of arguments in, in academia. They're trying to suggest that they actually they're they're an indigenous people, set, and they've been colonized by the Arabs. I mean, it's it's incredible, but they, that's the part of their the, the strategy. It's um, on the flip side. There's a growing pro-Palestinian movement. There's a growing pro-Palestinian awareness. There's a there's a growing awareness of the Palestinian narrative which was for for decades, uh, which was totally neglected. It was hidden even. It was totally downtrodden. Now, there's a re-emergence re of that. Um, and many of those, the members of those campaigns are themselves Jews who, uh, you know, see 
the fallacies in the Zionist narrative. Um, and therefore you find now that, uh, like I mentioned, I mean, marches that's happened up and down the country, across Europe, even in the United States now, the raise the Palestinian flag, the talk about what's happening in Gaza. By the way, I mean, just talking about Gaza, the fact that now, what is it? We're talking about 17 years, 17 years under siege, 2 million people yeah. closed uh, off. I mean, I let's, let's let's be honest here. 19 it, years, and 17 bombardments in Gaza in the 19 years. It's, yeah. it's, it's just um, obscene the fact that we're not allowed to speak of what's happening to, I mean, we talk about children's rights, we talk about women's rights, we talk about, but yet no one can talk of Gazan children, Gazan women and the such and what they've been suffering, Gazan families. Um, the siege alone and then the bombardment uh, over that and no one can talk about that. But we're seeing, we're seeing an emergence of this new sort of protest against this authoritarian, almost fascist approach to safeguarding, you know, Israel from, you know, from, from, from anyone's uh, attacks. As, as a writer, as someone who works with, with uh, a research center that, um, that uh, you know, talks about Palestine, that, that, talks, uh, that promotes uh, Palestinian um, uh, writers, novels, narratives, and the such, I'm sure that you come across many examples of young men and women emerging who want to be engaged with that. Of course, yeah. I mean, what you mentioned, uh, there is a lot of positives out there, uh, despite the despite swimming against the current. You know, um, the pro-Palestinian activism is around the world is is growing, uh, which is why you see the backlash. The backlash is the way it is because pro-Palestinian activism is so strong and powerful around the world. BDS, despite what Israel says, BDS is a growing phenomenon. So uh, when we so we take I take a lot, lot of pleasure in that in the fact that this despite states, Western governments, you know, um, galvanizing, uh, criminalizing pro-Palestinian activism, there's still so much support for Palestine. Uh, and not only that, mainstream support for Palestine. And one of the biggest indicators, which I mentioned uh, earlier, was the fact that the Democratic Party overwhelmingly now supports Palestine over Israel, which for me is, is quite a milestone. You know, for many years, Israel was a bipartisan issue. It no longer, no longer is a bipartisan issue. And that's sending, you know, uh, shockwaves in, in Tel Aviv. What do we do now? Um, even Zionist uh, organizations like the Board of Deputies here in the UK, their previous leaders, he remarked uh, following a 2001 um, uh, uprising, uh, following Sheikh, attack on Sheikh Jarrah, he said basically, we fear that Israel is going to be soon aligned to just right-wing extremist, far-right organizations. There is not going to be a single progressive, you know, middle-of-the-road uh, centrist liberal organization that is that will be willing to support Israel because as we know there's a consensus Israel has become an apartheid state um, but the way I look at it is that they don't care at the moment a lot of these western governments they don't care so what if Israel is an apartheid state the the, the existence of Israel in its current form the status quo is way more important than any value we may hold to be there whether it be democracy whether it be uh, freedom of speech none of this matters to us as long as Israel survives in its current state. But that, that cannot hold. So that's showing, of course, the hypocrisy of the West, but that hypocrisy cannot sustain itself for, for, you know, for, perpetu you know, in perpetuity. So I mean, I mean, young Jews that see uh, the, the nature of their current government in Israel, uh, 
I mean, surely must be absolutely horrified. And at the same time, I don't know, is it just me? But over years now, I don't know, since I remember 2000, 2002, every single time we used to have a, a march or a protest or a vigil by the far right. At the time, it was Nick Griffin and uh, his his bunch. And then it evolved into something called Britain First and then Tommy Robinson. Every single one of those marches has an Israeli flag. Is that right? I mean, so so the 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 fears that you you, you mention are there. I I always used to be baffled by the fact why is no one coming out from the Israeli embassy, let's just say, saying, "Listen, by the way, we don't want our flag, our national flag, being tarnished in this way, being associated with these thugs or fascists or neo Nazis." I mean, this is this is where it really you know descends into absolute absurdity. So, as a simple answer for me is is there's an effort to remake the West by the far right as we know it. Remake the West in the way Israel has been remade. Ethno-nationalist racist state, you know, racial uh, purity, racial exclusivity. That's the model they want. And this is the model which the far right wants to impose on the West, which is why they hate Muslims. They hate refugees. They hate anyone who's not white. And they want to remake this state model in its existent current form to something which is uh, closer to Israel, ethno-nationalist state. And and that's the reason for the affinity with Israel. They see Israel as something to aspire to, to, to recreate in their own country, and hence the affinity. What would you say, David, to the students, the activists who want to have, you know, who want to afford platforms on Palestine, but fear that they will, there will be repercussions that will impact on their lives and, and future careers. What, I mean, from your own experience, um, you know, what would you say to them? What would you tell them? Well, I think there's, I think there's too much fear. I think people are too scared of, of taking action. But also, I think that many of the organizations on our side are themselves too timid uh, and are compromised by uh, their involvement with with liberal Zionist organizations. I mean, I've just come from uh, f shooting an episode of Palestine Declassified today, which where we've uh, dealt with an organization called Yachad, which is an, uh, styles itself an anti-occupation Jewish organization, uh, and which is putting pressure on uh, more radical parts of the Palestine Solidarity Movement not to platform people who are in support of, of Palestinian liberation. Now, that cannot be allowed to continue. Uh, and of course, the counter-argument is, well, we have to have these people because it broadens our appeal. Well, no, it doesn't. It stops you from having a proper cutting edge to your movement. And of course, th this is a, a part of a backlash against the more radical mood in the Palestine liberation movement in Palestine and indeed in this country, where, f for example, expressed by Palestine Action with their, their occupations of Helmut factories and there's the current ongoing siege in Leicester and just the other day, uh, the uh, attack on the the, uh, the the Newcastle factory of Raphael and other Israeli arms from now. Th there's an attempt within the Palestine Solidarity Movement to undermine that more radical spirit. And I, I, so I would say to people who are who are supportive of this more radical spirit, which is, seems to me to be eminently sensible, to simply tell their organizations no and to go ahead and organize things, that, uh, to organize meetings and not be put off by official uh, official uh, d d dictates that they can't organize them. Have them elsewhere, have them on the street. I mean, I was in Scotland a few months ago and I, I was to do a meeting in Edinburgh and a meeting in Glasgow, both of which were banned at the last minute, one by the police 
because they were phoned up by Zionists and pressured, and one by uh, the Quakers in, in London. They pressured the Edinburgh office of the Quakers, who were standing firm, and made them uh, turf, turf us out. They had much bigger meetings outside and round the corner than would otherwise have been the case. So you can't fight back against these things, and it, and it can work. And so I would urge people to be to have confidence, to be brave, and to take take the steps and to support the Palestinians because that's what we should. That's what the moral thing for us to do. It's, it's surely good when courts turn down the proposal of governments to ban or to prohibit BDS. Sure, I, I mean it's it's an ongoing process, isn't it? I mean you talked about the, the experience in the US and that documentary you mentioned, a uh, boycott, fantastic documentary. But yeah, I mean there there it's a, the pressure is mounting and mounting. They, they sack people, they close people down, they get them uh, deselected as candidates, they get them removed from their jobs, they have the professional associations condemn them. All of that has a really significant effect on us in terms of the people who it affects and also the, the wave of fear that it, it creates. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, the support for Palestine has never been stronger and people understand increasingly well, um, the, the need for Palestinian liberation, not just uh, the end to the occupation of, of the West Bank, but leave Palestinian liberation. And I, I mean, so we need to to be be confident and be strong, and not to take uh, not to take the views of those parts of the movement who are who have effectively softened Zionism. And effectively, if I, if I can put it this way, uh, there are an, an infiltration of Zionists into the the Palestinian liberation movement. We need to make sure that we, that, that can, cannot be allowed to happen. We can't be uh, allowing Zionists to pressure us to deplatform some of the best people in our movement. The presence of uh, pro-Palestinian voices within parliament, I mean, that used to be something that was there. There used to be the Labour Friends of Palestine. There used to be, you know, the Liberal Democrat Friends of Palestine. Um, they both changed their names in order to engulf the Middle East and Israel and, and the such. Um, but there seems to be a depth of, of, of voices that are willing to come out and, and to speak publicly about uh, Palestinian rights, um, not even in the terms that we're talking about now, but even you know about 67, for instance, and the borders of the West Bank and Gaza and, and the like. Very, very few. Um, surely that's an area of concern, don't you think? Yeah, huge concern. I remember a decade ago, if you wanted to hold an event, in Parliament, yeah, easy. number easy, easy number of MPs would, would agree to you know uh, host an event on our behalf, but now it's very very difficult. I mean, what what it reminds me of is exactly what the drafter of this controversial IHRA definition of anti-Semitism himself said that this will have a chilling effect on free speech, and I think no way is this felt more than in parliaments where MPs feel, what am I going to say about Israel if all the all that I can say can be somehow misconstrued as anti-Semitic. For for academics, for 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 activists, it's not much of a, it is a problem, but not as much as it is for an MP, um, who who would be much more careful about what they say. And if you have a definition which Labour has adopted, Conservatives have adopted, and many other institutions have adop adopted, which basically says that you know questioning key aspects of the reality of the occupation, reality of Israel's existence, is anti-Semitic. What do you say? So it's best just just avoid it. Best just to stay clear. And this is the chilling effect which Kenneth Stern, the author of uh, the IHR definition himself, warned about. Uh, of course, the Zionist lawyer would say, "No, no, this is not going to have a chilling effect. We just want to make sure you know we stop anti-Semitism." But you've defined anti-Semitism in such a way where it conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Jewish racism. Where does what, 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 what space has been left for free inquiry, free discussion? I recall, I recall many years ago when uh, Jenny Tung, 
who was a front bencher with the liberal liberal democrats when she went and visited israel and then went into the uh, you know into palestine to the so-called occupied territories <clears throat> and um, so-called because uh, they're far more expansive than than they are led to uh, to state and uh, at a checkpoint and describing her experience at the checkpoint she said well i'm just thinking of what palestinians go through every single day mothers who go into labor people who are trying to get to school children trying to get to school people trying to get to their jobs so that they're not sacked and she said you know if 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 i was going through that day in day out i might have acted in the same way as palestinians are acting out sometimes and that absolutely ruined her political career so you know again if politicians and front benches um can't express those kinds of views i mean she said nothing she said nothing apart from what she had seen and how that had impacted her and what that led her to think or believe and her career was was absolutely after that she was toxic i mean every single meeting that she was invited to no one else would come to yeah well i find the same thing people people won't come to meetings if i'm on the platform it's a it's a you know it's a it's a witch hunt to try and exclude particular voices voices which are critical of of zionism i mean in a way you're they, they sort of say to you you you're allowed to be critical of israel but only within certain confines, only ways which we say are appropriate. You have to be critical of Israel in the same way as you would about any other democracy. But Israel's not like any other democracy. And, well, and you know, nobody says that you can't be critical of Britain in a way which is different to being critical of America. Of course you can be critical of Britain. I mean, it's, it's completely crazy. The idea that, that there is a state of Israel has some kind of inalienable right to exist. No state has the inalienable right to exist. Uh, not, not least of which, of course, is the, the what, what is it we call this country? The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I mean, what kind of a, what kind of a nation is that? I mean, I, as you can tell, I'm from Scotland and the, I, I, I personally believe in the, the breakup of this country. I think that the, 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 the state should cease to exist forthwith. Does that make me a racist? Of course not. It's completely Completely absurd, but nevertheless, they've constructed this idea that if you question the right of the state of Israel to exist, you are somehow anti-Jewish. On the contrary, you know, it's a question of of solving the the problem of settler colonialism, and the only way to solve the problem of settler colonialism is to abolish the settler colony. And does that, does that mean that you have to kill all the Jews? Of course not. It means you you abolish the the colonial relations which underpin. The, the occupation, just as you, it was the case in, in Nelson Mandela in dismantled Africa. apartheid, but right. South Africa did not cease to exist. But, South Africa right. exists. He dismantled just uh, as in the case in, in, in Ireland, you know, with the settler colony in, in the north of Ireland continues to exist. We've we've got a, a stasis there, a problem which is not finally gone away because they haven't dismantled the settler colony, which gives uh, advantages to Protestants. These these are the same relations which underpin all settler colonies. It's not a question of the, the unique bad, badness of the Jews. It's, it's to do with, with settler colonialism. It, it, it sets up this, this kind of inexorable program. And the only way to solve the, pro, the, the problem from their point of view is the, is the, the, is the time-honored uh, way of solving settler colonial problems. That is, you eliminate the natives, like in America, like in Canada, but then the alternative to that, of course, is you, you dismantle the settler colony. And that, of, co of course, that's what should, that needs to be done. You can't do that by just allowing there to be some kind of settler colonial situation where there, there's some kind of Palestinian bantu stands around the outside of it. That's not going to solve it. Thank you very much, chaps. That was a fantastic discussion. <laughs> Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Appreciate it.